the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings, everyone, and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. With me today is Bill Bennett. Hi, Paul. Good to uh, good to catch you, Bill. Hope you're uh, hope you're doing well. I am now. Yes. <laughs> the COVID fairies visited our house and left. Oh, well, let's, uh, yeah, let's hope the, the COVID, uh, yeah, stay, stays away. Let's kick in. There's there's a lot going on. Uh, first up, do want to thank our show partners, uh, Vocus, Vodafone, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology for uh, their support. And, you know, really, uh, New Zealand Tech Podcast is, is about, uh, you know, keeping up to the play with what's going on uh, in tech here in New Zealand and uh, and, and encouraging an, an increased uh, adoption and, and leverage of technology. So uh, first up, Bill, we've got uh, the budget, budget 2022 here in New Zealand. Uh, Minister uh, Dr. David Clark made an announcement around a, a $20 million tech sector uh, investment, which I guess it's it's primarily focused on new uh, innovation and invention and so on, isn't it? Um, maybe you can you can give us your overview on or thoughts on uh, on this. It's for the, it's for what the minister calls the digital technology sector, but really it's about software as a service mainly. Now it's interesting because the minister issued a statement just before the budget talking about this, and he said. It. The um, digital technology sector contributed $7.4 billion to the New Zealand economy in 2020. And his spending 20 million over four years. So that's 5 million a year. Well, you'd think, right, if you're turning in $7.4 billion a year, um, that, you, you know, as an industry, you could probably find the 5 billion, sorry, 5 million yourself to do the promotion. But, but it's not really about that. What it's about is, the money is really to promote New Zealand as a place where you can do this kind of business. Um, and that doesn't just mean companies coming here and setting up shop as, uh, to develop in New Zealand. It means things like attracting talent from overseas to come and work in our sector. It means drawing attention to our sector, to overseas companies. I mean, one of the big successes of our um, software industry in the last four or five years has been that we've Manage some pretty large trade sales to of our companies to um, larger companies buying them up, and that you know people people worry about the fact that um, an overseas company comes in and buys a thriving software company in New Zealand, but that's actually um, a business model. You know, building a company and and selling it on, um, and you know when every time someone criticizes that happening and saying, well, it's taking the the, the work and so on away from New Zealand. Well, it doesn't necessarily. Quite often they retain the teams in New Zealand. Some of them do, some of them don't. Occasionally they will wrap, they, they will close up shop here and move everything back to their um, home country. But even when they do that, there's, there, there have been cases, and the classic example of this is Rod Drury, who went through that process a couple of times. Um, and, he, and by doing so, he built a war chest, which could be used to pay to develop zero and that's what a lot of that money that's what happens with a lot of that money a lot of that money when people sell their software business to an american company or a, a tech giant or whatever that money gets recycled back into the sector it doesn't tend to just get spent on a boat and a uh, and a batch and a yacht and um, uh, 
biomass and so on, it gets recycled back into our sector. So um, drawing attention to us, to what happens here in New Zealand and the rest of the world, it's actually, a, it's actually a really good way of spending $5 million a year. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, tend to agree with you on this one. But it has been talked about that our broader you know, tech exports are you know, growing you know, very rapidly, and there's the different sort of stats that you can, you can draw on depending on where they come from in terms of you know, how much of our economy is well our export revenue comes from technology but of course you've also got that aspect that that really every single sector relies on on technology so uh you know yeah. the, the better we get at leveraging technology the better new zealand uh does as a nation and the well, better that that we can sort of maximize the the software as a service offerings and the other offerings that that new zealand produces and get those out to a bigger market, then again, that flows back in uh, and has a has a positive, you know, uplift on on all New Zealanders. Uh, that's right, and and it's you know it's important that we export atoms in the shape of you know milk or or whatever or or um, produce, you know, uh, vegetables and and all that primary pr- production stuff. But it's also really vital to a modern economy to be exporting photons, and that's a much uh, more lucrative. You know, margins are so much better, and it brings in so much more money. And it doesn't mean you have to ship these across the ocean in those horrible vessels that boil that, you know, burn that um, polluting, smoky fuel and so on. So um, it's a really good way to move the economy forward. Definitely, definitely. Well, let's uh, let's see how this goes. But you know, we did we did speak with Minister Clark on on an episode, uh, you know, probably I don't know, a couple of couple of months back around this uh, NZ Tech story. And uh, look, I'm I'm all for us, uh, you know, sharing sharing that story, and yeah, hopefully we uh, we make the right sort of steps that uh, that keeps New Zealand um, steering in a in a good direction. Now, onto uh, onto travel. This has been an area certainly the international travel is something that is is really just starting to fire up again and i i see more and more people across the the tech sector and you know fairly short space of time who are saying that they're they're heading they're heading overseas one one reason or another but it's uh, it's usually around growing sales of of you know, new zealand technology and uh, there was there was a story. It was um, it's been just been in the media this this month, but it's not necessarily brand new. Around technology that could end the airport liquid ban that has been in place now for well, we're talking a bit over 20, 20 years now, or in the, certainly in that direction. It was something that came in following uh, following nine eleven. And I still talk to people to this day who get surprised by it in one in one form or another. I've chatted to, to someone just in the last few weeks, and I guess it's been a long time since any of us have travelled. They went off to Fiji, and uh, I don't know what it was hundred hundred dollar bottle of cologne or what have you uh, that was uh, taken by customs because it was it was twenty milliliters over the limit or something with that hundred uh, milliliter rule. Yeah, exactly. That had 120 
many of these are thinking of um, shaving soap, um, yep. which got taken. I mean, the fact that I used about half of it didn't come into the equation. Just looked at the the label that said 120 milliliters, and that was it. So, yeah, yeah, it's been an ongoing hassle, and yeah, I don't I don't know what it's ended up uh, costing, and but you know you can never probably work out afterwards whether it was the right thing to put in place or not. But the technology that there is there now anyway, that and they have scanners and and a number of airports around the world. Uh, so hopefully we see this uh, this ban uh, disappear, something that we don't have to uh, we don't have to worry about again. And uh, I guess it's a, a little bit of a uh, a watch watch and wait. Actually, I see here it was August two thousand and six where the ban uh, came in after a transatlantic terrorist plot was uh, was foiled in which a group had planned to detonate uh, liquid and explosives um, across multiple multiple flights. So uh, yeah, we're certainly talking a decade and a half uh, here that that's uh, that's been in play. Um, but now they've got uh, the CT scans that uh, will uh, basically allow them to do away with this ban. Let's, uh, let's hope it doesn't take too long for it to roll out. Of course, it's expensive equipment and, and it will you know, take governments a little while to, uh, uh, to get their head around it. But uh, certainly the, the, the tech's been available um, you know, probably for, for since before uh, COVID came along. Uh, and uh, I think you know now's the right time, hopefully, to uh, to move forward on that one, so we can at least uh, make travelling a, a little bit a uh, little bit easier. Uh, now we've got news in from uh, Canada that uh, they are banning Huawei and ZTE from their five uh, G networks, uh, and then that will also roll back to uh, to their four G networks ultimately as well. Um, I find this quite interesting because it, it, it seemed as though Huawei, you know, especially had, uh, you know, been massively impacted as far as the Five Eyes uh, countries were, were concerned. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, US and UK, you know, had, had, had uh, a level of ban in, you know, in place for some time now. But Canada uh, have decided to, uh, you know, I guess be on a, on a, on a somewhat similar footing. Uh, to the other Five Eyes uh, countries, Bill, was this a surprise to you to to hear that they actually were 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 quite out of step with the other countries, regardless of what we think around um, you know the whether Chinese companies should be having their equipment well, in uh, in these networks? Yeah, there's two things. One is one is they're pretty slow with this. I mean, the, you know, the rest of the world knew about the problem a couple of years ago. If there is a problem. So it, it, it does sort of look a bit slow. The interesting thing is, is that China, sorry, um, Canada specifically mentions ZTE, and that hasn't been mentioned by um, other countries. I mean, we have, there's been no talk of that brand in New Zealand, for example. But I do remember that when this was first blowing up, uh, probably about three or four years ago now, um, talking to some Huawei executives, and they said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're a Chinese company, but ZTE is much closer to the Chinese government. I think ZTE actually has some um, Chinese investment in the company. So for it to be just Huawei, which the brand was, um, looks like it was, you know, more symbolic than really about 
any security risk because the other Chinese companies were doing were selling stuff. And you've got to remember that a lot of the equipment that doesn't come from a Chinese brand, like Nokia, for example, at that time was being manufactured in China. So um, it did look as though it was more about, you know, the original Huawei band could possibly be more about politics than anything. I'm not saying there's no, there's no case to answer. I mean, that's uh, we've discussed that in the past. There could well be a case to answer. We still don't know for certain if there is. But um, it, it's just curious that it took, Canada so long and it's also interesting that they have broadened it beyond just Huawei yeah look I, I do recall going back uh, maybe it's about four four years now uh first half of 2018 where we heard that there was there was a level of ban on uh, on ZTE Corp uh initially it, I think it was a seven-year ban from US companies from being able to sell parts or, or software to them which seemed to uh, basically put a stop to their handsets. But, of course, we'd never really seen ZTE handsets. It wasn't really a brand that was known here in New Zealand, and it seems as though that has uh, continued. And, yeah, they got a big sort of slap on the wrist. Uh, And I can't remember all, all the details, but it was sort of ahead of Huawei. And I guess the sort of the bigger ultimate sort of story was that the Chinese regulations or laws was, you know, such that there was a concern that at any point the Chinese government could say to a Huawei or a ZTE or any firm in China, hey, we would like access to XYZ bit of data and uh, they would be compelled to to provide that. Now, if you, yeah, I mean, it, it is very curious because there, there is an aspect here where you, you might look to some other countries and there might not be a, a law that anybody's aware of, but you would imagine exactly that same thing could happen. Oh, uh, so, but there's obviously been, been debate from, the, you know, the likes of Huawei and, and ZTE, which says, look, you're reading the law wrong. We couldn't do that. We wouldn't do that, and it's not possible. But you know, look, this there's a there's a risk mitigation here, either against these sorts of spying things, or as you allude to, allude to other political uh, reasons. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it's not as though it's, it's not as though other um, companies, not as though companies haven't been accused of doing exactly exactly the same thing in the past. I mean, that they have they have been, but there's definitely. There's definitely an element of politics in this, as well as an element of you know, any security considerations. I'm not saying the security considerations aren't real; they probably are. But I'm saying there's politics in it too. Sure, sure. All right. Uh, on to uh, on to other topics now. Ransomware seems to be. Uh, just an issue that's uh, that's not going away, and there were a couple of interesting uh, headlines that that caught my attention. One was around a small U.S. university, been around for uh, over a hundred uh, hundred and fifty years, Lincoln University, a rural uh, based in rural Illinois, uh, quite small, uh, typically eleven hundred uh, students. And it sounded like they had been struggling anyway, but they were hit with a uh, ransomware incident uh, end of last year, uh, understood to have originated out of Iran. And uh, that for them seemed to be the uh, 
the the nail or one of the nails in the coffin for uh, for this university. And we do f- from time to time hear these sorts of stories of organisations that a cyber attack of some form, um, more often than not, ransomware takes them out. And yeah, it's it's always you know quite concerning to hear that. But I think it is important that we hear it, that we understand this stuff is really critical and we do need our organizations to be doing better and better and to be getting more and more uh, secure. I just think it's, a, it's an important important warning. I got a threat report from, uh, from Fails last week, which I, um, I wrote something about this on my site that um, I think thought it had some interesting stuff about ransomware. One of them was that um, most New Zealand companies are quite comfortable with paying ransomware demands um, and about half the companies in New Zealand now have a plan to deal with ransomware, which normally means going out and buying some Bitcoin and paying up. Um, and uh, 40% of companies in New Zealand have allocated budget to dealing with ransomware. But, this, but that survey came up with a couple of other interesting things. One of them was that, a, that um, what is it, a quarter of the, oh, hang on, I've just got to get the number. Yeah, one company in nine. Okay, 11% of New Zealand companies, their IT people can tell you where all their data is, right? So that means that nine out of 10, they don't even know where all their data is stored anymore. And that's the, you know, uh, part of the issue. Um, The other thing about ransomware, which really bothers me, is that this is the killer app for cryptocurrency. You know, we always wondered if there was a killer app and the killer app is ran- I mean, it, it, it enables ransomware um and i'm not saying the thing about cryptocurrency is bad i'm saying that it enables bad things and that's one of them um whether we should be you know whether whether companies should be paying whether there should be any legislation about whether or not they pay ransomware demands is is has been debated i don't think we've got anywhere with those questions yet i don't i don't think any country has really got its head around that yet but it's well there, there is a, there probably is some aspect of that if you're and this is the hard bit you don't necessarily know where the funds are going but there are countries yeah. that uh that we're not allowed to um you know do business with and send money to but if you don't yeah you know you don't know whether you're sending money to a sanctioned uh country or not uh, you know, you potentially could be getting yourself or your organisation into hot water, but I don't see anyone prosecuting that at this point. No, I, I haven't either. But it's it, but it is it's definitely security problem number one, and you know it's just something that you've absolutely got to be across. Do you do you cross it much in your business, Paul? It's a it's a really good question. We don't directly within within Gorilla because. You know, our, our our sort of, I guess, the foundation of our business has very much been on on building very, you know, secure systems and educating those that we work with on these matters. Um, so it's it's not usually the sort of thing that we will see within, you know, within our kind of core clients, uh, where where we have full control of those those systems. But it it continues to happen, you know, out there. And, you know, I mean, we know it can be a, a big organization like a DHB. At yeah. the moment, we've got country under attack from from this sort of thing right now. Um, I'm 
trying to remember who it is that'll come that'll come back to me yeah i mean it it, it just it just continues and it and it's relentless and yeah I guess the sorts of things that we that we see from organisations um, that are getting hit, where we've been called in to, to have a look, we see scenarios where organisations are being hit multiple times. So they're hit once, yeah. but they fail to actually tidy up, and then they actually get hit again. This sort of thing is, as I find, you know, quite shocking, the relaxed nature in which organizations who maybe get away with it, with a ransomware incident, find themselves unwilling or unable to invest appropriately to protect themselves better against a future ransomware attack. And so, yeah, we see this happening uh, multiple times. Uh, Costa Rica, I believe, is the one that's been uh, hit with... uh, with ransomware and um, my understanding there is that the attackers, the the Conti gang, um, that they have indicated an interest in bringing about regime change uh, if the government doesn't pay up. Um, the, the last figure I heard, I think, was 20 million USD and holding a country at ransom. So this is sort of next level to what we've ever uh, ever seen before you know the figures i mean uh, uh, probably in the scheme of it for for a country yes that could be a doable figure to pay but they're saying that they've got insiders so you pay that up then uh, you might be asked to pay 40 million the next yeah. week so not yeah. uh, not a great place to be unfortunately yeah i mean and if, if uh, costa rica's on their list then you know we're a bigger country but we're not a lot bigger we're probably there's probably someone thinking about doing it with us as well well the piece that we haven't yet really seen to any great degree you know or certainly hasn't been it hasn't been talked about um publicly and i certainly hope that new zealand would be the last country on the list for this sort of thing to happen is the sort of insider uh, enabled attacks yeah that that is something that is you know at 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 this point um you know i think is is generally considered very very rare uh so we've got that aspect you talked earlier about um cryptocurrencies well we i guess it, it is worth being aware that we do see people having their bank accounts sort of used for funneling uh money and so you know it is it is quite possible if you know if ransom if ransom we are needed to operate without cryptocurrency that there probably would be mechanisms through which you know that uh, yeah. th- that money would get to criminals but uh, probably in a in a much less uh, reliable fashion that said uh, you know crypto is uh, you know one of the things about the transactions being on the blockchain is there's a fair bit of visibility uh, there turns as out well. a lot of visibility. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot yeah. more than people thought, and, yeah. and uh, that's right. The, the problem with crypto is not that it's uh, um, inherently criminal. It's just that it smooths the path for those people. Yeah. On to another story to do with, uh, you know, I guess the 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 darker side of the way technology uh, gets used, and we've seen a you know a bit about. The Philippines election, uh, particularly as it was, you know, as it was coming up, and 
it sort of blew my mind that there was a chance that Philippines might elect a family member of past dictator. Yeah. And yet this, this is exactly what's happened with it. You know, another member of the Marcos family uh, has come into government there. And what I understand is, is that through the use of the likes of TikTok and other social media platforms over a period of years that there has been, uh, you know, fake accounts, all sorts of things set up uh, to be able to push out political propaganda that is surely riddled with lies and has managed to convince a majority of the population to you know, bring a member of the Marcos family uh, back as president. And, you know, if we look, you know, back a, a few decades, it was a big deal that they managed to uh, to topple, you know, the original Ferdinand uh, Marcos. And there was so much uh, corruption and so on. I don't know that it ever actually got through the, through the courts fully, but just quite, quite shocking uh, that this could happen. And the most of the pointers I'm I'm seeing to just you know manipulation uh, through social media and uh, yeah I'm my mind is really just still you know blown uh, by the the madness in uh, in this one. Well, you know I was around when the internet was young. I was around before you know back in the very early stages of the internet and. Um, there was always this optimism about how you know we'd have all the information that humanity had accumulated over the years at our fingertips, and we would all become just so wise and so able to get hold of all the you know the facts and information we needed. And in fact, almost the reverse has happened. I mean, there's there's plenty out of there. There's a lot of it. It's just plain rubbish. And there's some really weird uh, things that happen to you, like for example. I was looking at some YouTube videos about, believe it or not, about early Chicago house music. And the next thing came up on autoplay was this, was a, a YouTube video telling me that the world is actually flat. It's, it, it, it's just incredible just how that just pops out of the woodwork when, you, you know, when you're not expecting it. And, of course, we've all heard stories about this, and it's happened with elections in... Um, you know, the Western countries, it's probably happened in our election too. It seems that we've created a playground for ratbags to just do all this. And even now, not much has really been done about that. Yeah, look, I think we've got some challenging times ahead as to how we, you know, how we navigate uh, through on these things. And it's not easy, but I think that the technology can do better to a degree. And the tech companies can do better too. Yeah, how you... Uh, how you get that right sort of playing field of enabling the free speech whilst giving giving some balance. Uh, I think you know we what we're discovering is this stuff is is maybe uh, much much harder than um, than most of us would have ever imagined. And and I mean it's just it's just such a, a huge topic at the moment. It seems like Elon Musk thinks he can uh, he can help in some way. I'm really not <laughs> not sure if anyone's got the answers on. Uh, on these things, I think we, we, we're going to have to uh, keep working at it, um, at least coming out and it's being talked about. But, um, you know, it probably this sort of discussion certainly doesn't appear to have happened in, in Philippines yeah. in the right sort of timing. 
and I just hope for the you know for the best and and countries that are impacted. But you know, re- realistically, you know, I guess you know, democratic uh, systems around the world, wherever we are, are being impacted to a small or a large degree by social media and and at times by real you know manipulation of social media in a in an inappropriate way. And I I, I mean, I think at this stage, it's it's probably even hard to define what are the things that are and aren't acceptable. Obviously, there's been some change and some improvement with the likes of Facebook in recent years after after past dramas. But uh, yeah, I think we've still uh, still got a way to go. And maybe that's why TikTok was so heavily used in, in this case, because I, you know, I don't think we've seen TikTok being held accountable for anything uh, anywhere at this point point in in time yet they're incredibly fast growing and are probably unlikely to be uh you know covered by well, le- legislation in in the short term after the u.s kind of i was gonna say it's also because the demographic which is tiktok's demographic you know, younger people is not really in the 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 uh, sites of the people that worry about these things at the moment they're far more concerned about the you know the older people and, and so on so um, I think that's part of it, but I think you're right. I think TikTok probably does have some questions to answer. Yeah, and look, I, I don't think that we we fully understand how these varying platforms may be all of the, the realities of what goes on and the darker side of communications that happens on these on these platforms. Uh, and, I, you know, and I don't know how we necessarily figure all those things out. What worries me is that they're probably the people who do understand these things are not using their superpower for good. Yeah, well, certainly that you know, if you're a big social media company, you you you've got a lot of data on what's going on. Yeah. A couple more things wanted to cover off quickly before we before we finish up, Bill. Uh, AMD see that they've uh, they're they're just under thirty percent market share for what we generally call the x86 um, processor or, or, or CPUs. So in there, you know, compete with uh, largely with Intel, uh, who you know, obviously come up with uh, that technology. It's, it's what we're used to using traditionally in Macs, but no longer. Uh, but certainly in the large majority of PCs, laptops, and uh, and servers, and the numbers that we're uh, we're seeing. So uh, yeah, twenty seven point seven percent in the uh, most recent recent quarter. Yeah, this is I think it's probably quite astounding to people, but it, it, it's probably uh, from what I've read relates quite a lot to their growth in the server market and probably the sort of you know hyperscale cloud environments and so on. I think also AMD got to the um, the lower transistor size faster than Intel as well in the in the last cycle through. But the interesting thing about that is, of course, we're talking about the x86 market, the x86 um, CPU market. But of course, as you as you mentioned, you can cut Apple's share off of that now, which is probably about fifteen to twenty percent of the PC market nowadays. There's other the ARM processor was. was being lots of um, tablets and, and um, things like Chromebooks and so on. So Intel's universe has been shrinking, you know, at, at, at quite some rate. But, you know, the company's been around for 50 years. That it's, um, it's, it's not unusual for a 50-year-old company to start to lose the plot a bit and um, not be at the top of the market anymore. 
Yeah, look, I'm fascinated how this is going to play out because we've seen actually some pretty impressive moves from Intel most recently after. Yeah. And in fact, it reminds me of, it must have been a decade and a half ago or so when uh, AMD sort of took took the performance crown off, uh, off Intel and I bought some yeah. shares and... Uh, uh, and then shortly before uh, Intel got back in the swing of things and uh, and and the stock dived. And we're sort of in this this period now, and I, I was talking to some of the, the chaps on our, on our team here uh, around the sort of performance. And, you know, it does seem with this new 12th generation of, of chips that are starting to come through from Intel uh, as they are getting back into into the swing of things so it's going to be it's going to be uh you know an interesting time ahead we've also there's been some uh, media coverage around uh russia who are, who are no longer able to get intel and amd chips certainly through official sort of channels uh that they possibly will be utilizing a um a very slow x86 compatible chip out of china Although the the company uh, can concerned have denied that, but if you if you go into a, a search on you know Russia and China and X eight six chips, yeah. uh, there seems to be quite a bit of, of quite a bit of coverage. So we've got some really in- interesting uh, times ahead. And and look, the sanctions on on Russia, uh, you know, the scale of them. You know, if you actually stop a country being able to get, you know, access to current technology, the impact of that uh, over time, I'm not saying it's quite the same as cutting off a food supply, but it, it, I've got to imagine that it will have a massive, massive impact on all of the population of, of Russia yeah. uh, or of any country where, where this happens. Yeah, I'm. I you know, I, 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 I don't have any answers for it. Well, I was going to say, Paul, I wonder what the implications are for the intellectual property lawyers um, on on that as well. There's probably, I don't know, probably some implications there. But I I would say good luck with uh, fighting a legal case in Moscow, trying <laughs> trying to stop that from happening. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. I mean, cutting people off from that technology. It's almost a reason um, for a country to, um, you know, to not not invade someone else to avoid that kind of problem because literally their technology stops in, um, you know, March twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely huge, and I, you know, I just wish it would have that sort of impact and would 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 make this thing stop but uh we're not seeing that yet but just the the very last piece was i saw some uh media around um a new space academy uh opening up to train private industry astronauts now i don't know how big this is uh or or whether it's you know almost a scam because you can't imagine that just yet there's going to be that many seats available um you know, on on rockets with with the likes of SpaceX and you know Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and so on. Um, it's not as though you know the, the, we need a, a huge number of new um, astronauts, but um, that that's probably a, a, a topic for uh, uh, for another day to uh, to delve into, and um, it'll it'll be fascinating to see. Is you know, 
are there people that will will go and do this sort of study rather than uh, traditional uh you know education routes because that that there there are those jobs opening up well that's exactly it isn't it i mean there will be people who, who will um and spend a small fortune so they can train as astronauts and whether there's a job at the other end and it may not be a very well paid job at the other end either so it, it may not be a scam but it could be a tax on the credible people who think that they're going to be astronauts and that's that's the bit that's the aspect of it that actually worries me on the flip side though as more and more goes on in the space sector there will be a need to help people transition into that sector and prepare people for uh, for roles and you know we, we obviously have a, a space industry here in New Zealand somewhere between I don't know one and three billion uh, w- would be you know the the guess from the numbers I'm I'm hearing and so we 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 want you know we want people that can step into those firms and we you know we want them to be local and I'm sure the US and and other countries you know want want similar. I think we do, but I don't know whether those people are going to be astronauts. That's the that's the question I've had about that. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. there's pro- probably not so many on the uh, on the astronaut front, at least in the yeah. in the short term. Well, that that sort of brings us to um, the end of the the general topics, Bill. But as a journo, what uh, what have you been writing recently? Are there any uh, anything that people should be looking at up at BillBennett.co.nz? I see uh, there's a fair few things going on there. You you have talked about uh, the 2022 budget. Yeah. Anything else there, Bill? Yeah, the other big story that I covered in well, the other story I've been dealing with in the last week or so is that the Vodafone's back in court over FiberX, um, and the Commerce Commission basically feels that the fine that was handed down to Vodafone by the court wasn't big enough. And so they want to go back and relitigate that to get it, to get the fi- a larger fine. And it's, it's a kind of mixed bag story because what Vodafone did with FiberX was pretty, pretty dodgy. Um, but it was a different company back then. I mean, it's, this was like years ago. And my feeling about this is this is, the, this is exactly the kind of um, litigation which needs to be done faster because it's kind of dealing with a problem after the the problem hasn't gone away i mean vodafone still sells its hfc network but it hasn't branded it as FiberX for a long time um and i would like to see whether or not they should be you know fined more or, or whatever i'd like to see this kind of case dealt with a bit faster i think it was six years ago that the whole thing happened and it seems a ridiculously long time to wait for it to be resolved and the other story which I'll be looking at in the next few days is what's happening with Spark's plans to, well, to do something with the public phone boxes. I mean, our, our children are going to wonder what those things ever were about. I mean, if, a, if a, someone under the age of, say, 30 sees a Superman film where he goes into a phone box to change, they'll wonder what the hell's going on. But phone boxes used to be an important part of our lives. But they've kind of had it. They're a sort of anachronism as a rotary dial ready in, in um, 2022. But there are still uses for these things. I mean, the Spark still has Wi-Fi on some of the boxes. And there are places where you actually do need a public phone booth because, I don't know, you may, maybe you don't have um, a mobile phone. There are still a few people without mobile phones, but there aren't many. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's a reasonably small uh, selection. Yeah, look, I mean, the, um, the, the old, you know, FiberX branding 
the the product they were selling um, was was known, and maybe this was a you know a marketing name that the industry came up with overseas from having a look at it. But it was called Hybrid Fiber Coaxial, yeah, um, HFC. And guess I didn't probably feel uh, quite the same a, a, as you about it when I, I thought about this recently, and I can't remember what my what my comments were when this went through uh, a few a few years ago when it, you know originally they were uh, you know they got in, in trouble for it. I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't seem quite as nasty from two perspectives. One, you know, the performance was really the only other thing you could compare it with at the time was a, a pure fiber connection and that name hybrid fiber coaxial um you know it was a it was considered presumably a play on that name by the marketing folk of the day when they came up with that but uh i mean we're, well, we're a long way down the track now aren't we well there's no yeah there's a couple of things it's not just the name which is the problem with the call it's but the name it was a bit of a problem because Vodafone at that time, there was definitely an attempt to confuse people to think that they were getting the same as fibre to the node. Right. The HFC cable doesn't deliver fibre to your house. It delivers fibre. I think it's fibre to the curb, but it's there's a there's a there is a fibre, but it's involved in it as the name suggests. But it wasn't fibre yep. all the way to the house. That's the first thing. But the second thing is is not. I mean, there was. There were actually something like 18 offences in that original action. And the name was only one of those 18. I mean, some of the other things that happened was Vodafone salespeople were telling people that that was the only service they had at their home when they didn't, when they did have fibre and they did have access to fixed wireless. And so right, so right. There, there, were other, okay. there were other things mixed in with that. And it wasn't just a simple naughty name. It was, you know, uh, quite a bit. Okay, you've got a better memory than I have on these things by the sounds of it, Bill. Um, I was just having a look, and I put in an address um, where a family used used to live, uh, which has, which I recall had, uh, you know, had that HFC type connectivity available, and um, yeah, pretty pretty interesting. Um, uh, fifty three dollars a month to get a, a connection um, of they listed as seven hundred and sixty nine megabits uh, download speed. So uh, you know, pretty snappy and comparable with uh, um, you know with probably you know a lot of fiber connections, ninety four megabits per second upload. So probably not you know quite as snappy um, as as the plans uh, that uh, um, uh, you know fifty bucks. Good. Yeah. Uh, for fifty three dollars, uh, yeah, it sounds uh, sounds sounds pretty good. Now that I'm just reading the fine print, um, that includes a ten dollar discount for for being on a um, for having a Vodafone mobile connection as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still there, and you can you can still get it. And I remember there it, it did seem a little bit hard to find on their site, or even disappeared for it for a little while. Some uh, some uh, some time back, but it's it's there, and you can you know you can go and and buy it now. Um, and it's uh, you know not dramatically different from what we're seeing for uh, you know four G type uh, uh, you know, connections. Yeah, but hang, hang on, in twenty sixteen the performance was quite different from a fiber connection. Um, I think it, I think at the time it was something like a hundred meg. 
was the um, speed. I can't tell you off the top. I can't tell you exactly what it was, but it was certainly a lower. It's been updated since that time, and that's and that's what I mean about um, these things need to be dealt with faster because it's a today you're looking at different performance and you know since that happened, Vodafone's changed. Um, it's changed ownership. It's got new management. I don't think any of the managers who are involved in those decisions are still in the company. Um, and it hasn't been selling FiberX like the, the way it was for some time now. Yeah, yeah. So I feel that, you know, the Commerce Commission has a point, but it should help with the, a long time ago. Gotcha, gotcha. Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up, Bill? I think we're done. <laughs> Okay, well, hey, thanks everybody for for joining um, Bill Bennett and myself, Paul Spain, on the New Zealand Tech Podcast today. Do go across and have a look at BillBennett.co.nz to to see some of Bill's latest insights. You've got your uh, newsletter there that people can sign up for as well, right, Bill? Yeah, and that's pretty much my focus now. I mean, I used to write a handful of separate stories every week, but now I put them together in a newsletter on Friday just to... um, just to make it easier for people to get it all in one place, really. Oh, good stuff. And, of course, you can you can find us at uh, nztechpodcast.com and uh, across all the, the varying uh, or most of the, the social channels. So uh, thanks, everyone. We'll look forward to uh, catching you again uh, next week. Take care. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.